What's up, everyone? Can you believe it? It's actually here. Welcome to episode number 100 of the Health Unchained podcast. You're listening to your host since 2018, Ray Dogo. When I first had the idea to interview people in the blockchain space that are specifically focused on healthcare, I had a short list of all the top leaders in the space. Over the last few years, that list has grown enormously, and so has the community of builders, legal experts, and innovators who can see the vision of a transparent and trusted healthcare ecosystem. The next generation of our connected web of people, things, and ideas is going to change the way we handle anything of value. Web3 is what people are currently calling it, or Health 5.0, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, It doesn't really matter. Whatever it is, it's big, and it promises some pretty great things for research, quality of life, and essentially health freedom. I am so thankful to each person who has listened, promoted, shared, and supported the show. Over the next 100 episodes, I'll work to get the best guests and create the highest quality content to help you get ready for the wave of disruption that's coming for health and science. Thank you to the Health Unchained Telegram community for your engagement and increasing interest in the show. It really motivates me to know that people appreciate the conversations we have and look forward to new episodes. I'm so grateful and lucky to be able to bring these complex topics to you with the top experts in the field. Please support the show by rating and reviewing it on your favorite podcast player and following me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Okay, now moving on to the main course. In this episode, the CEO of Crowdfund Cures, Sava Kurdamelidis, and Nick Fiorenza, Head of Business Development and Operations, join me for a fantastic discussion about the potential of decentralized science to fund medical science and specifically longevity research more directly via a pay-for-success model. We also discuss the concepts of using NFTs and DAOs to effectively build new governance models for advancing research and development for pharma and biotech. As always, it's the engaged communities that keep this movement going. Shout out to the Boston DAO community member, Spiro, who introduced me to Sava and Crowdfunded Cures. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. I'm pleased to introduce Sava Kurdamelidis and Nick Fiorenza of Crowdfunded Cures today. And we'll be talking about what the organization is doing to help DAOs in the biotech space grow and grow their community and also raise funds for researchers as well. So glad to have you both on the show today. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we start with Sava. Would you mind sharing just a brief sort of background about yourself for the audience? Yeah, sure. So my background is mainly in commercial and intellectual property law. I've been working with tech companies for the last 20 years or so, but my interest in this area came from my master's thesis where I did in 2014 around weaknesses in the patent system for drug development. So at the time, my fiance got very sick and I was going online looking at what therapies there are. And I noticed that a lot of the treatments out there that were getting a lot of hype online, particularly around off-patent repurposing and diets, don't really make sense from an IP perspective because you, they're not profitable. So that's kind of the reason why I set up Crowdfunded Cures as a charity was to look at solving that particular issue and using an alternative to the patent system, which I, at the time was called a flexible prize type model, but that's just like a contingent or a pay-for-success contract. But yeah, since then, I've been involved in a few a crypto, advising a few crypto firms, particularly through my family and uh, my brothers have uh, some DeFi projects they're working on. I want as Kuba, which is in Zimbabwe, and then Rootstout provided DAO DAO last year and which are it's a DSI project and very aligned with what we're doing and amazing community of scientists and that's where I met Nick and he, he's jumped on board and since then we've been to a pretty solid core team of around five with about 10 volunteers. Awesome and you Nick? 
My name is Nick. I have a background in molecular medicine from the Charité in Berlin, and I looked at repurposing an antipsychotic against colon cancer metastasis. I've been in the Web3 space for over a year, and uh, yeah, I first was with Vita Down, part of their core team, right before they launched the token, stayed with them for a bit afterwards, and I also met Saba during my time at Vita Down, and then he started chatting away on the Discord about repurposing and all these cool topics that we're currently working on and i was like yeah i gotta gotta join forces and work with him and and thus here we are so great to be here awesome and that's so interesting so one of you nick you are more on the biology side of things more on the science and then saba's coming from the legal aspect which is really important for this web3 space it's something that cannot be overlooked it really doesn't matter until we can all agree that legally speaking these ip nfts or these DAOs are legitimate enough for everyone to agree on and if there's any sort of problems we have some sort of process by which we can solve those problems so that's really interesting and i'm curious you sort of told me your stories about how you got interested in the DSI world salva you mentioned your fiance was sick so you were kind of scouring the internet and trying to figure out ways to help her maybe found out about that way in some respects and nick you as well can you just talk to me a little bit more about the importance of DSI for you so yeah, for me, back then, the sort of 2012, 2014, so it's definitely pre-DSI, but I think DSI, I've been excited about the idea of DAOs generally around crypto. It can allow people basically to coordinate, a bunch of people to coordinate and pull resources and also align incentives in a trustless way to solve problems, which are essentially public good problems that we all share. So that's the most interesting thing about DSI is helping coordinate scientists to solve public goods problems. And particularly, so I actually did a sort of postgrad degree in biology, but I never got into it because particularly in New Zealand, like biology is kind of just the worst sort of career ever. It's probably rewarding, but financial wise, you might be 40 by the time you get your first big grant. And then you've got a bunch of jobs that you've got to pay for. And it's just this really, oh, you can go into pharma and then you've really only got like three cities, three or four cities in the world where you can really make a job in pharma and then you kind of go into the dark side as well. So for me, DSI is about fixing a lot of those problems and allowing the best and the smartest minds to get funded to solve problems that we all face. So that's the opportunity. I think. Interesting. You mentioned the dark side of joining Big Pharma. We could talk later. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, from my side, I left the lab right after I completed my master thesis. I thought about doing a PhD, but I didn't want to get caught up in this whole publisher parish kind of environment that has been just stagnating science. And as a scientist, you want to do science. And what DSI enables now is what the scientists have always dreamed of is actually doing science and working together and collaborating and things that Saba also touched on as well. So that's why I'm really bullish on DSI. There's so much amazing overlap with what crypto inherently wants to enable internet-powered communities as well, and just the realignment of incentives to drive technological progress forward. That's why I love this space at the moment, and I will probably love it for who knows how long. It's really exciting to see scientists doing science again and inspiring these academics to join this movement and push forward, getting even industry involved at some point and other people involved, and it's just amazing. So, Sure, yeah. and we all know here, all three of us know, how large the science community community is in general. It's huge because it's not just the people, the researchers doing science, but it's all the supply chain related to the equipment needed to do science. It's related to all the animal models and standards that have taken hold over the last few decades around science, biological life sciences. There's so many parts to this. At this point right now, my understanding is Vita Dow, Molecule, other companies like this are mainly focusing on the ability to raise money for researchers, for projects, specific projects. But in the future, we can see the DSI ecosystem grow to ensure your Eppendorf tubes are part of the deal when you get a smart contract funded, for example. So there's lots of different ways to grow this ecosystem. And we have to start somewhere. I get that. And I think that you guys are with crowdfunded cures. I want to learn more about that. With crowdfunded cures, you're trying to raise the awareness about what's going on through this organization. Can you talk to me more about the original? reason you started crowdfund cures and then what it's doing now yeah as i mentioned it was mainly to address these market failures under the patent system for certain kinds of therapies where you can't use patents or patents don't really work that well at the moment all kind of farm 
for innovation is reliant on your ability to enforce a monopoly price over a new molecule, a new patented molecule. And what happens is if there are thousands and thousands of off-patent molecules, therapies where you can just access the active ingredient, whatever it might be, whether it's a supplement or looking at a diet or looking at lifestyle interventions or plant medicines, things like that, where patents don't really work that well. So there's this massive kind of untapped area of, of health. And, and what we're trying to do essentially is create a new business model by raising awareness around using a pay for success, or basically you could think of it like a prize model, prize-like model, or a bounty model as an alternative to the patent system. So ultimately, it would be good if it was backed by government. And we think because there are so many kind of therapies out there that are off patent, but are extremely effective, it could be re really low hanging fruit for, say, the government or health insurer large enough to kind of offset those. The cost of, say, the prize would be offset by the cost savings as a result of this new therapy. But we're definitely kind of focused initially on governments or large sort of organizations like VA, BADA, sort of do the counterterrorism or new therapeutics to tackle pandemics and also the NHS. So it's, we're in talks with those people initially. Yeah. And for the audience, where are you guys based? I know it's probably decentralized, but is there a headquarters or office? Completely decentralized. I'd love, I'm just in Barcelona now, and that's where I was before COVID when this kind of hit. And I'd love to kind of be back here, but no, we're totally decentralized. I was in New Zealand. The charities in New Zealand, but if we run an impact DAO, we're likely going to set up in a kind of offshore jurisdiction. So I'm quite a fan of the Caribbean as a jurisdiction, as a sort of area. And the team is totally, yeah, we've got people in UK, in Berlin, we've got people in sort of uh, in the States all over the place. Awesome. As I understand it, the Medical Prize Charitable Trust organization funds the crowdfunded cures nonprofit or? That's a New Zealand nonprofit. Yeah. So we're a registered New Zealand nonprofit and crowdfunded cures is kind of the project that nonprofit. However, once we launch as a DAO, we would likely have an, a separate sort of legal wrapper to operate out of, which and now I've got experience in setting those up and also through our molecule and beta DAO. They're now looking at sort of rolling that as a service to other bio DAOs because legal, as you alluded to, legal is a really tricky one to get right. Yeah, definitely. I think the US is probably a tricky jurisdiction at the moment. So they're sort of operating out of Switzerland, which is probably a, quite a good area, strong pharma ties, how yeah, positives negatives to that yeah we also have an equity kind of vehicle that's my consulting firm in the, in the uk so we've sort of got all bases covered interesting so in terms of you guys have both been in this space for a while what do you think are the biggest challenges that the space is experiencing i'll let you go here Nick. there's a lot of great ideas and i just hope that these ideas can be sticky enough for commercial viability we'd like to dream in the DSI space we're scientists and i hope that some of these dreams do come true so with that there should be some liquidity there should be some testing some experimentation so if we are in an environment that's conducive for that that'll be great at the moment the macros don't look so great so it's going to be tricky for a lot of projects so it's a matter of being persistent and realistic and also yeah being flexible and adapting to the situation going forward it's definitely still early and i think the way that this will play out in the next few years it'll be definitely interesting to see i think overall long term this is going to replace the way we do traditional science that's at least my perspective however until we get there who in the space maybe not in the DSI space, but in the scientific community might be pushing back or might be saying, no, this isn't going to work because dot, dot, dot. Do you have any sort of one or two specific challenges or pushbacks that you often hear from people in the community, in the scientific academic community, or maybe in an investment community as well? Mm, from my side, it's not because of any direct relationships that I have, but from just what I've been hearing and from conferences and stuff, it's big publishers are obviously a little nervous of what's happening and who knows what they can do to enable them to kind of try to influence the way things will be going on the publication side of science. I'm really not quite sure. You know, that's, yeah, that's a good point though. P publishers are going to definitely be dis not necessarily disrupted, but their current model could get disrupted if they're yeah. not going to find a way to fit in. Uh, yeah, but, exactly. We're going to have mm -hmm. to work with them. We're going to have to work with all these, say, Web2 or meat space entities and wrap them in. I think that's the real way to drive Web3 forward, at least in the DSI space, is to just wrap those players into the space and help us. <laughs> yeah, and I think what's awesome about the Web3 community and crypto and blockchain in general is everyone is definitely trying to collaborate, partner up with each other in order to grow the larger community. So same with DSI. I think 
it's not like we're trying to totally replace what's happening with science now. It's more about creating new opportunities, new solutions to make the whole system effective for everyone, especially patients at the end of the day as well. Yeah. It's that onboarding pipeline that it's important and facilitating a really good user experience or community experience ultimately to facilitate that maybe offboarding on into onboarding into the web 3d side space so that's going to be a big bottleneck that will be a challenge but hopefully with good tools and good governance etc cetera, etc cetera, that should be done yeah i mean from my perspective i mean i don't want to sort of show crowdfunding cures too i think that we can help a very large problem in biopharma research around funding if we can create basically an open source or a marketplace for clinical trial data that might not be traditionally funded by biotech VCs. So from my perspective, as far as like naysayers, we tend to talk to biopharma VCs, they're sort of very much focused on patents and the patent system. And from their perspective, like if you come up with a new patentable drug, then you're essentially making $12 billion as or $10 billion as sales revenues over the next 10 years or so. From their perspective, it's like a $10, $12 billion prize, but there's a massive kind of misalignment around just pushing a single blockbuster drug on as many people as possible. It kind of goes against the whole principles of personalized medicine and also looking at other kinds of more holistic uh, approaches to medicine and combining different modalities and things like that. So I think definitely we'll probably see a pushback in traditional pharma, although they might also be quite interested in in the model eventually, I think because of the general decline in, in pharma productivity, it's not really sustainable. But yeah, the other one, and what I was saying, I think the biggest kind of naysayers and, and the biggest threat, I think, is just for a lot of DSI people, I don't think it's that much of a risk because DSI people tend to be not as hype focused as a lot of other people and more in touch with reality, but just finding a really good use case for why crypto or why DAOs and really leveraging the technology in a non-trivial way. So, yeah, not just using it as a gimmick. Yeah, that's right. Many will ask you why even bother using blockchain, just have a company to manage the intellectual property in some way and have part owners of the IP. But maybe that can lead us to the discussion about what is an IP NFT. And some people listening probably understand what it is really well. Others have no idea what it stands for. So IP NFTs are intellectual property non-fungible token assets, digital assets that can be traded, purchased potentially as well, invested in and represent the intellectual property that is on the smart contract basically for that IP NFT. Do you want to go into detail about why this is such an important part of decentralized science? Yeah, definitely. I think, and it does trip up a lot of people, particularly they're saying, well, why have an IP NFT? What's the kind of benefit? Why not just put IP in a company and then have share, sell shares in the company? So there are good reasons behind that. For one, I mean, an IP NFT is basically, it represents essentially clinical trial data, pre-patient clinical trial data. So it's like a key that will open access to clinical trial data. It also records ownership of that data. And the more interesting thing about that is that could be completely arbitrary and it could be wrapped around a particular treatment protocol or an asset that traditionally you couldn't really put into a company or it wouldn't be that efficient, but you could allow people to essentially support a particular asset and then trade that in real time through these crypto markets and also provide access to liquidity at a very early stage, even before you say set up a company and things like that and where it gets spun out. It's really a way to get liquidity in at a very early stage where there's this valley of death where something might not get funded. And then if it doesn't get funded within a few years, then often it's a no-go for everybody because the patent runs out. The reason I'm super excited about IP NFTs and what they can do is that essentially, eventually once, and I alluded to it before, once you can get to a stage where you can just pay for clinical trial outcomes under these paper success contracts, an IP NFT could represent something that's not traditionally investable, like a breathing exercise, or a talking cure, or just a diet, something like that. And you can have people invest in something like that as a product that they want to see come to market and make a return on investment out of that. So this kind of real flexibility. And also, I think, though, just the ability to trade in real time and also eyes and have access to liquidity through the crypto markets. I think that's the real core driver around that. 
It's also interesting to see how transparent it is as well. Like you can see transactions of the owners of the NFTs, IP NFTs on block explorers, for example. So it just creates a different level of community transparency. And I think that's something that the scientific community always valued, making sure things, the data is transparent, clear. So yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, something. And that's a gentleman that's helping us out at VitaDAO and Molecule. Chris Burns is an IP lawyer, used to work for uh, these RPX Corporation, which is, handles a lot of patent litigation. And what he's saying is that patents, the way it works is there's just this massive chain of licensing and cross-licensing. It's very difficult to figure out who actually owns a patent. I think that's a non-trivial use case as well for like why IP NFTs might be useful. And the other thing I'd mention is just around leveraging the markets and creating signals. It's a bit like a sort of prediction market. And I think that's a very interesting thing around IP NFTs where you get people basically creating signals as to which therapies might be the most promising through the IP. And once they get very good at selecting the winners, then they almost build a portfolio reputation around which IP NFTs are likely to go up. And so you're kind of leveraging the markets in a way that's it's very flexible and it's not necessarily held back by the kind of company structure. So just going directly to the products, I think that's quite interesting. That is interesting. You could think of an IP NFT collection being formed, focusing on a specific therapeutic area or maybe molecule or something like that. Can you explain the pay for success contracts? You mentioned them a number of times, but for someone who might not have ever heard them before, what would that work? How would that work? Yeah, it's a pretty simple thing, really. It's just you could think of it like a prize. But actually, more recently, things like innovation prizes have been seen as quite advanced. The US government federal agencies now have these, it's called the America Competes Act where they have authorization to sort of come up with prize incentives to solve public goods problems up to $100 million or $50 million without getting Congress approval. So we've got organizations like XPRIZE and, and things like that. So what they are is somebody says, okay, this is a particular outcome we want and we're willing, this is how much we're willing to pay for it. And we just put it out to the market to, to basically solve this particular problem. Where it gets a little bit more nuanced is talking about pay for success. There are these instruments called our social impact bonds which are basically, uh, they came up, it's only really in the last 10 years that these have come up, where it's basically the government says, okay, we want to solve, help solve homelessness. And then if we're willing to pay $10,000 per homeless person that you can get off the street for a year, then we're willing to pay $10,000 each for each homeless person. And from that perspective, the government actually saves $100,000 due to saving and like extra policing and, and boosts the economy and that sort of thing. So from their perspective, it makes sense to pay the $10,000. And then from that, you might have a private company come in and you come up with a very innovative, more innovative than say a government could do a way of helping with homelessness, like assigning uh, agents that will help with social training or like paying for a, a program to help with mental health or addiction, something like that. You can use these kind of pay for success mechanisms essentially to create more innovation around delivery of public good. And more on the farmer side of things, there's something called a pay for performance contract, which are actually, they've already been done. So basically you might have a new drug, an expensive cancer drug or an expensive orphan drug, and it might be a million dollars a year or a hundred thousand dollars a year. And the government doesn't necessarily want to pay that much, but what they do is they enter into a pay for performance contract to say if this drug will work then we will pay you this much or we won't ask for a rebate so they're just sort of contingent contracts and what we want to do and what the novel thing is and this hasn't really been done before is to use those for therapies like off patent drugs and nutraceuticals and things like that where traditionally patents don't really work i guess the tool that we want to leverage and yeah it's all about sort of negotiating contracts with the government or with large health insurers basically do you foresee these contracts as being on the blockchain sort of smart contracts that are almost immutable or are they more like legal contracts that people decide on and sign typically traditionally? Yeah, I mean, just like anything, you could definitely have them off-chain. And I think initially, they probably will be off-chain. However, as things get more sophisticated, and particularly what we're trying to do with crowdfunding cures, where we might crowdfund one of these pay-for-success contracts like a prize, and then have it like by issuing these impact certificates or open-source farmer NFTs. And then that could be entirely on the blockchain. And then you could have it enforced as a smart contract where it consults with an oracle and determines if has the oracle then reviews the clinical trial data that's encrypted in an IP NFT determines it and it could even use the kind of zero knowledge proofs or something like that so it doesn't actually have access to the clinical trial data it just determines if the clinical trial outcomes are being met and then that triggers a payout and this can be done entirely on chain without reference to enforcing patents or anything like that so that's kind of the future 
Yeah. And with all of this, it's so important how you design these contracts, the specific terms and the economics, the incentives behind it, really the psychology behind it as well. Because in a way you're, I don't want to say you're gamifying research or funding research, but in a way it's, like you said, it's a prize. So it has this gamified feeling to it. So designing it in a way where you're optimizing for better research, more investors funding research and just clear terms. I think that's really important. Do you agree? How important are these factors in your design? Yeah, I mean, totally. And we're definitely missing a trick. I mean, that's our core problem is that we're trying to find, I guess, this is the product market fit. And that's the bit that we haven't yet validated is like, how can we sell this as a product, as an open source farmer NFT? I mean, obviously, you've got Ford Ape Yacht Club and they managed to sell $3 billion worth of their their apes. And people are super excited about that. But it requires a bit of FOMO. It requires some gamification, get people involved. But you'd think that just having the disease should be enough. But yeah, we're definitely looking for folks that can help us in that space and to try and generate a bit of a demand. Do you think, and you may have done this already in your research or, or whatnot, but if there is a IPNFT or six, a pay for success contract related to a specific disease, would it make sense to reach out to those communities affected by with patients that have that disease specifically? It could be like some rare disease or something. So it's really targeted. Have you guys experimented Absolutely. with that? Or Yeah, we're reaching out to different to patient advocacy groups to rally support for, say, a mental health-related prize, leveraging ketamine or other psychedelics, for example. So yeah, we do have like a targeted approach to find like our targeted, in, in quotes, impact investors that would potentially benefit from funding these kind of clinical trials as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's actually interesting. You mentioned ketamine trials. I think there's been a new renaissance of psychedelic research again, right? I think people I were talking about this. You have PsyDAO, you have other DAOs that are focused on this type of research. I think it's really fascinating because to me, that's an unexplored area, at least in the traditional research world. I think there's been a lot of underground research done in the last few decades. And there were, even before that, there was like legitimate research done, but then they stopped it for a while. We're coming back now. How important do you think that space is going to be for science DAOs? massive the convergence of psychedelics web3 it's pretty big and it's a massive use case because there's so much that can be explored and if you are able to rally the support of the community that also is interested in funding and de-risking these kind of studies be them preclinical clinical etc that's awesome right and i think the power of DAOs in this case is that you have so many N equals one experiments of an individual person experimenting on their own with perhaps a legal ketamine or anything basically to alleviate any kind of mental health issue or explore the psychedelic or the, the realm of consciousness, etc. So any kind of psychedelic focused DAOs in this space, like out for example, there's so much potential there. So it's really exciting to see that happen and so much innovation that can happen from there. Yep. I agree. And it turns out it's not just about cures anymore either. It's also about finding ways to enhance the human condition overall, but making sure that we use scientific real world evidence to understand the science, I guess. That's really interesting to me because we have so much unexplored area in the neuroscience. I just want to emphasize that. For sure. It's data, ultimately, what we're trying to generate. And if we're able to generate the data and hand it off to regulatory, in this case, then we're going to be able to say, hey, listen, this is what we're doing and it's working. Let's try to negotiate something on a regulatory perspective and try to get something's changed, right? If we get that data out into the public and we're able to rally people that might not be specifically in this psychedelic space, but in the medical space where they're affected by some mental health issue and they might have not had any idea of what could be enabled through a psychedelic research, that's it's also great because then you have the network effect that is being driven by these side outs. Right. And I feel like that's something that our society doesn't like to talk about too much because whether you believe it or not, around the world, there are lots of psychedelic drugs used. And most of that, those experiences are not in a clinical trial setting at all. But if there was some way to gamify or to collect that data, and I'm talking basic data, I'm not saying record your entire trip on video and then write an essay on it. I'm just saying measure your heart rate and temperature maybe and just during your trip, maybe three times in the beginning, middle, end, how are you feeling? Just something. We can learn a lot. I think there's a lot of hesitancy because I don't know why there's a lot of hesitancy, mainly to protect people. I think a lot of people don't realize the risks of using psychedelics and the dangers. I think obviously this stuff is very powerful in the wrong hands. So again, I'm for a regulated market. I think it's important because it takes the dirty 
drugs off the streets. I think that it keeps people safer. So anyways, that's a roundabout way of saying DSI is important for the psychedelic space. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that what's missing is the lack of a market for that data. I think if there was some business model around generating that data, even for something that's off-patent and free available as a plant medicine, then people would, would create platforms where they could record it and then it could be actually used in a useful way. At the moment, it's a little bit like actually the supplement industry where people basically buy billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of supplements every year, and the clinical evidence is just negligible. In fact, I don't know, I've seen it written somewhere that there's basically almost zero evidence that any supplement is useful to treat any particular disease. However, we've got a bunch of anecdotal evidence and people sort of recording and posting things online, but that data, it's not useful to anyone if it's not valuable then it's just lost. So you've got these market failures. And so that's kind of part of what we're trying to do is around incentive alignment and uh, helping solve those. Yeah, Saba, that's a really good point. Nutrition market is huge and none of that is really regulated. So I would love to know if my vitamin D pill that I take every day really does help me with my immune system and all that. I I think it does just because I know I'm slightly vitamin D deficient. So the pills help. But there are so many other supplements that are kind of like out there. People claim that they work and they try to sell them and they have awesome marketing behind it, as you guys can see. But does it really impact your health? I don't know. Data could help us know. Even medicinal mushrooms. There's so much preclinical and some clinical evidence, but not robust enough to indicate that it could be used in a clinical setting to treat certain diseases, right? Imagine being able to grow, there's so many thousands of mushrooms, grow some mushrooms in wherever, have a homegrown kit for a specific ailment that you might have, or to prepare your immune system for the next wave of COVID, for example. So that would be pretty cool to see at some point, but that's, that's pretty far out, but you never know. With Pay for Success, we could accelerate that and that would be awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it would be awesome. And I actually grew mushrooms, lion's mane. Very yeah, delicious. Nice. You can shred it. It tastes like a crab or lobster, actually. It's so delicious. But it claims to be healthy for me. I felt great afterwards, but again, clear. So, uh, And with this model, with DSI and what you're building, it's feasible to reach that business model, to reach that sort of ecosystem model. So I'm glad that you guys are working on it. And I'm glad that your teams and all your partners are so excited and inspired by all this that's going on. Maybe we could talk about some of the partnerships you have with Vita Dow and Molecule and others. Like, What are you doing for them? What are they doing for you? What are your milestones? Yeah, for us, we're super glad to be on your podcast and talking about this sort of thing. We're super passionate and pumped, but it is a struggle. But we have had a lot of support. So Vita Dow is one of the first communities, I think, that really we engage with and they've given us a 40,000 in funding for a feasibility study around a pay for success contract. So one of the drugs, for instance, that we're looking at, they're very in- interested in improving longevity. So there's a lot of patent, in fact, pretty much all of the drugs that have shown promise in the clinic for longevity are off patent. So things like rapamycin, metformin, NMN, resveratrol, these things are all off patent. So, but there's no real business model around developing those drugs unless you can patent like a tweaked version of the molecule. But again, is that tweaked version any better than the off patent version? If not, then, then your sort of business model is at risk of off-label competition and things like that. So we're working with them on that and also this longevity prize. We're hoping to set up a generic drug repurposing longevity prize where they'd raise 200000 from COIN, but they're using Hypothesis Prize at the moment, but hopefully we can engage with the longevity community around that. People like Methuselah Foundation, also Lifespan.io published the interview around that. So there's a lot of that molecule obviously have the IP NFT platform and they've recently did their raise. And also we're looking to leverage that particular platform to create this marketplace as we're talking about for clinical trial data. We think that's going to be super important, but pay for success is an important part of that. Sidao, you mentioned, so we partnered with them looking at open ketamine, we think, and MAPS. I think we've also spoken with MAPS around that. They sort of put us onto that open ketamine, open source ketamine would be extremely valuable because at the moment you can only really get it in a clinic and it's off patent so the clinic takes on all the risk of off-label use so for that reason it's actually quite expensive in the u.s it's around twelve hundred dollars to get six sort of infusions and in the uk it's around six thousand pounds and that's not reimbursed by health insurers or government because it's off-label so if we could get an on-label version of ketamine and there's also evidence that that racemic ketamine the the sort of off-patent generic version is more effective than 
patented version, which is called S-ketamine by Janssen Pharmaceuticals. It's evidence that the off-patent version is actually more effective. We think that could be a really good product. So Open Source Pharma Foundation, we've been having chats with them. We think basically there's a lot of synergies and that they've got quite good connections into India and they're successfully looking at a bunch of uh, clinical trials. One of them is actually is in the COVID space. It's called our BCG vaccine, one of the first vaccines made that can boost innate immunity. So they're working on, and that apparently reduces risk of all respiratory illnesses by up to 80%. And another area we're looking at is our fluvoxamine. It's a little bit like ivermectin, but it actually works. So it's been shown to work in, in a Brazilian clinical trial hoping to engage with Barada. This is a government agency looking at the basically counterterrorism and making countermeasures and that they've got quite a big budget, 1.2 billion. And then also obviously trying to work with NHS, which is the UK payer, to try and see if they might be willing to support a pay for success contract. So we just submitted a brief to their medicines repurposing steering group. EU also, EU Commission is also very into repurposing, that's what they say, but it's not through a pay for success mechanism. It's all kind of direct public funding. So we think pay for success is, is a will be a way to kind of discourage this sort of slush fund kind of corruption kind of thing that happens when you get a bunch of government money being distributed in grants. Basically, if you pay for success, then you're only going to get paid if you get the result. But yeah, we're hoping to be able to engage with these people in this different space and bring them all together. Yeah, in a way, governments would like this pay for success contract model because they can have many different projects going on at the same time with the same goal and one of them have to pan out in a way and they would only have to pay for that is successful in a way right if it's not successful government wouldn't have to distribute the money how would that work can you explain that a little bit yeah no that's fine i mean i guess you could have multiple people kind of competing for the same thing of course it would need to make sense for multiple people and they would all need to know kind of there's a risk that one of them could take the contract. It's a little bit like, but I think from our perspective, rather than a purely open prize model, it might make more sense to do kind of an RFP kind of thing, which is a little bit more like a grant in a way, but where people kind of say, okay, this is the result we want. And then someone might come to you and say, okay, this is a drug and we want sort of exclusivity over this particular drug and a guaranteed outcome at the end if we are successful. And maybe those funds are then earmarked for for that particular person if they're successful. Or it could be just a complete open competition and sort of first to their first serve. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you need to work out as part of the contract design. And it's ultimately just a bunch of lawyers in a room, really. But it has to make commercial sense to people. On the one hand, the impact investors funding the clinical trials, and then on the other hand, the kind of government making sure that they pay for the right project. But I think definitely the less risk on the government and making it make sense for impact investors is more important. But you can also combine that with philanthropic funding as well. So it helps kind of increase the benefit for the impact investors to get involved. That's true. And one of you guys mentioned how important it is for the user experience to be really done well, designed well for this new space. Have you had any feedback from beta testers already on these platforms, like just the onboarding experience, investment, if someone's requesting money, their experience, just any beta test feedback that you can share? Yeah, I mean, we we are trying to get there, but we want to leverage existing platforms. I will say platforms like Gitcoin, they're really big in public because they're like a quadratic funding mechanism whereby like if you donate a small amount of money, then you'll receive like matched funding, maybe like 10x matched funding kind of thing. So it really encourages like smaller donations. However, I think they are running into issues around people basically splitting different wallets. They call them civil attacks, basically where you need proof of humanity essentially to stop people gaming those quadratic funding. So they could, if I had $100,000 in a grant, I could split it into like 100,000 donations of like $1 and then get a $10 million payout or something like that. But yeah, as a result, I think the UX on that one is, is definitely a steeper learning curve. I haven't looked at Giveit, but apparently that's a similar kind of project, but the UX is a lot simpler on that one. But we want to kind of obviously use platforms and not rebuild the wheel, but the, the ability to kind of onboard people and get them to sort of invest in or at least buy an open source NFT or whatever they want to do. And we obviously want to make that as seamless as possible. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. We all know here the importance of community engagement and governance. Do you have any specific visions or pathways that you want to take for your governance for your community? Typically, I mean, we just run things through the Discord. We've got 150 members on the Discord now, but there's obviously kind of a core team that's more active. And we sort of have like an exec group to manage that and have sort of weekly calls and things. But 
yeah, this is all part of it. Things like what we're doing now and our outreach and getting on podcasts and things and trying to spread the word. We're sort of in full evangelist mode and trying to get that community support, I think, is going to be super important. And then by the time we're ready to kind of launch a DAO, then we've got a sort of solid base of a community to see it actually function as a DAO. Gotcha. So listeners can follow you then or join the conversation in Discord. Uh, just check that out. I'll put a link to the website as well in the show notes for everybody. And we talk about DSI from the perspective we talked about in this podcast, but I think healthcare overall also needs to understand the benefits of using blockchain in the delivery of medicine and, and things like that. Do you have any, from your perspectives, do you know any barriers uh, to adopting blockchain and healthcare that you'd like to share? Maybe kind of bring it out in the open so people can talk about it, think about it. From my side, I'm here in Germany and um, my girlfriend broke her wrist and she also cut her finger. Happened like within two weeks or three weeks of each other or something like that. But I just realized how fragmented, even in a system as centralized as Germany, how fragmented communication is. Uh, just imagine if they were able to implement a system that was immutable, that was transparent, that was on-chain. And that could just be fed from one clinician to the other, et cetera, regarding procedure, patient data, et cetera. That would be so great. And I think it would break down so many barriers that I had to deal with, facilitate just quicker processing of everything. And this is Germany that I'm talking about. Imagine in the United States where it's really fragmented. If there is some way to unify through permissioned or permissionless, it's or a combination of both blockchains, distributed ledger technology to make the patient experience better. From like from a clinical perspective, that would be great. And then all the innovation that comes from there, right? How do we plug into those systems, etc.? How do we fix drug development through a PFS model, right? Imagine if governments with healthcare or with medicine using PFS on chain, where that's all captured and available and transparent for everybody to see. What does that do to that society? Actually, that like now people can go on chain. They can go into a block explorer and see that data. Now, somehow showing that actually governments are doing something through pay for success. They're funding successful things that are working through social impact and that's all on chain. And I think that could actually lead to a much more cohesive society ultimately. I mean, this is very abstract thinking and there's a lot that needs to get into that. But imagine if, if we move closer to that kind of society, obviously GDPR and patient and information, et cetera, and you know, some data stuff. Just imagine if things were a little different with that. There's a lot to work through there. I agree. But I, I think the idea behind it is giving custody back to the individual patients themselves, custody of the data. Right. I think right now yeah. the custody is with a clinician or a provider system group or government or something. And it, it should just be with the individual themselves because they're the ones that I would imagine care the most about their own health. In most cases, I'm sure you'll find cases otherwise, but I would mm -hmm. think they would mm -hmm. be. You also mentioned PFS. Are you talking about planetary pay for success? Thanks. Because I was thinking the decentralized storage systems protocol. That'll be important too at some point. Yeah, Absolutely. just wanted to clarify for anyone listening. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Something that many people don't often think about is organ transplants, especially if you aren't one of the 106,000 people who are currently on the waiting list for kidneys, livers, and hearts. While the 3D bioprinting industry tunes its scaling capabilities, it seems we'll have to rely on human and animal organ donors for the foreseeable future. So one would think that there is a robust system that ensures organs are transported efficiently to the people on the waiting list. However, in a recent exclusive story by the Washington Post, investigators reveal that the entire U.S. organ transportation and IT infrastructure needs a major overhaul. In January of 2021, the United States U.S. Digital Service recommended that the government break up the current monopoly that oversees what is formerly known as the Organ Procurement and Transplant Network. That monopoly is called the United Network for Organ Sharing. The nonprofit agency that operates the transplant system has held its monopoly for 36 years and worth more than $200 million, funded mainly by fees patients pay to be listed for transplants. It is a complex collection of about 250 transplant performing hospitals, 57 government chartered nonprofits that collect organs in their regions. It also includes labs that test organs for compatibility and disease, as well as other auxiliary services. The report cited aged software, periodic system failures, mistakes in programming, and over-reliance on manual data input. 
The United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNOS for short, oversees controversial policies that determine which patients have priority for life-saving kidneys, hearts, livers, and other organs. It reviews mistakes by members of the network and maintains the waiting list for organs. It also runs the complex technology that connects the entire enterprise together. In the U.S., the rate of procured kidneys that were not transplanted is about 20%. The reasons are in dispute, with members of the network often blaming each other. In comparison, though, European countries average about 10% discard rates. In an interview, UNOS Chief Executive Brian Shepard said the nonprofit was improving tracking and had a travel planning app in development. Shepard, who is stepping down in September, said his organization is audited annually by the HHS. He said that if officials visit the UNOS office, they can review specific chunks of the source code. There are little to no incentives for UNOS to ever modernize the operations of the system and improve the current processes or technology. And the government has very little leverage, the investigators wrote. UNOS considers its millions of lines of code to be a trade secret and has said the government would have to buy it outright for $55 million if it ever gave the contract to anyone else, according to the report. Some patients and providers have been forced to turn to travel sites such as Expedia to make plans for transporting these organs, which I found to be quite surprising. In 2021, 41,354 organs were transplanted, which was a new record. UNOS is overseen by the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, but that agency has little authority to regulate transplant activity. Its attempts to reform the transplant system have been rejected by UNOS, the report found. Yet HRSA continues to pay UNOS about $6.5 million every year for its annual operating costs of about $64 million, most of which comes from patient fees. This news corner is not meant to denounce the work of UNOS or its ability to maintain its network for over 36 years. That's impressive for any organization. The purpose of sharing this is to raise awareness about a systematic business problem that impacts the adoption of innovative technologies. I just think alignment among stakeholders in many government and government-aided programs have become unsustainable without improvements in their infrastructure and technology. Adding Web3 principles to the mix can help create secure information flow and build real economic incentives to improve usability and success rate of the organ transplant network. I also think a future organ transplant network could run on open source code as to not hinder any innovation from the community. I know a few organizations who are working on this problem, but there is still certainly room for more ideas and more developers in this space. You can check out the show notes to find out more information about this report and this article. If you enjoyed this news corner and you're enjoying the podcast, let me know by rating or reviewing the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And now let's get back to our conversation with Sava and Nick from Crowdfunded Cures. All right. I have just a few more questions to wrap up. Basically, if you have any specific outlooks, anything you want to share about the company for the rest of the year that you think will be happening on your roadmap? So yeah, we're hoping to launch beta, I guess, or crowdfunding site. At the moment, you can crowdfund for an open source longevity prize that we're working on to incentivize it. But the site itself is a pretty basic landing page. So hoping to get more of a crowdfunding type functionality or also work with existing platforms like Giveth and Bitcoin to do that. And then the goal is to try and launch eventually as an impact DAO, hopefully with support of the existing uh, DSI community. So as their incubators, so like uh, Molecule runs a sort of DAO incubator. So that would be on the roadmap to launch. And then in the meantime, we're continuing to engage with governments and health insurers to try and sort of push one of these low-hanging fruit out as a contract. So very interested in fluvoxamine as potentially an off-patent open source uh, sort of therapeutic. $10 a course versus $700 a course for molnupinavir, which is, has similar efficacy. And then also with Sidow, the open ketamine project, hoping to get that working. We also had discussions with Narada Urso, from, who's building PharmaDAO. He's as experienced. He's an ex-professor in the University of Miami. Met him in New York, actually, when I was over there. He's also working with very good contacts with government and pharma already been working sort of in the space for over 40 years, very into DAOs as, as a fundraising mechanism. So hoping to see some movements around our partnership in that space. He's got a, a Nobel Prize winner on his team, so adds a lot of social proof really into DAOs. So we're thinking that 
and maybe it's going to be a good sort of perfect storm and things will be coming together. And I just noticed a lot of people are very cynical about kind of traditional crypto, the sort of and side generally, I think is it's going to be, I think personally, it's, it's going to be one of the real the highest impact use case for crypto that has some real world impact. Interesting. That's that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And I think there's so much potential in this space and all the partners that you mentioned today, they're all doing their own set of activities as well. So it's just really exciting to consider everything that's happening in the DeSci world. At Health Unchained, I think it's really important that we don't just think about supplements and pills and things that we can take to improve our health, but really look at our health as something that we do have control over things like exercising and staying active is something that we typically do have control over. So I'd like to ask my guests what they do in order to stay active and healthy. So we can start with Asaba on that question and then go to Nick. Well, I just moved to Barcelona. I think having the environment is good, sort of being by the sea. I mean, me personally, I kind of need to go for a swim every day in salt water. Otherwise, you know, I melt or something and my skin starts flaking off. So I just have to do that. But yeah, obviously, I'm quite really into body weight exercises. I think that's a really good way to, you can be basically anywhere. I'm sort of traveling around now doing the sort of digital nomad thing. So body weights uh, is something that you can do from anywhere and, and then just going for a swim and obviously eating healthy and, and trying to get enough sleep. I mean, easier said than done, but if you can lock those things away, obviously you can do a hell of a lot, even though we don't really have data for that. So the other one that I was quite into, although is sauna, I don't necessarily need that as much now in Barcelona, but I think saunas a few times a week is a good option, particularly if you're in a cold, colder sort of environment. Sure, it helps to relax. From my side, daily meditation is really helpful. First thing in the morning to kind of just start my day with some silence and some calmness and also just kind of visualize what I want to achieve during the day, maybe write some things out, start with a good foundation so you can really prepare yourself and prepare your mind for the day. Besides that, I hit the gym four or five times a week, try to go running as well, high intensity training. It's my thing, lifting weights since I was 16, basically, and daily walks, going into green spaces, drinking a lot of water, eating well, Mediterranean diet, supplements as well. We don't get enough magnesium. We don't get enough vitamin D. I like to take zinc as well, just to prepare my immune system for what's to come. I live in a big city around a lot of people. We got cold season coming up soon in a few months. So start now. Takes some time for your body to acclimatize to the nutrients and supplements that you're taking. Yeah. And just Try to smile, try to dance, and try to do good in the world, right? So I love trying to smile, try to dance. That's a good one. It's, it's, I like it. I'm going to follow that too. Well, Nick, Sava, I love this. Thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention or share with the audience? Any takeaways? Just check out the DSI community generally. I think you were talking about ownership of data, so Fleming Protocol. They're working on that Fleming protocol. Also, LabDAO are working on sort of centralizing the supply of the lab services and then decentralized trials. So yeah, just some great projects out there. Antidote DAO looking sort of issuing NFTs for cancer. And I've and, seen um, a number of like ecosystem charts where all these DAOs are sort of organized in a way where who's working right. on lab stuff, who's working on psychedelic stuff, who's working on longevity. So I think check out my Twitter and check out crowdfunded cures i'm sure you could find it in their resources or somewhere while you're digging into that stuff so that's a good mm -hmm. suggestion thank you thanks again guys thanks for your time hey all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors check out health 